tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. It's flooding down in Texas, and all the telephone lines are down. I've been trying to call my baby. Lord, I can't get a single sound. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. All right, everybody. Good afternoon from This Is Vinyl Tap. We are, uh, unfortunately, we're remote as as we have been recently just because of all the various shenanigans going on with the, uh, with the Rona, but... Uh, I would like to say to today we're going to be discussing a seminal Texas album from the mid or from the early 80s by a Texas blues legend, Steve Ray Vaughn, and that album is Texas Flood. And as always, I'm joined by my very or our very humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Good afternoon, Tapsters. And as always, also joined by our host, whose album this happens to be. Doug Cooper. Hello, everybody. Oh, I guess I should say I'm Tony Slagle. Go, Doug. (laughs) I was going to say that because, of course, I'm always thinking of others. I I don't do the people here. um, I don't even know if they know about uh, the coronavirus we've been suffering through here in Texas, but um, it's it's touched a lot of us. Um, Before we begin, uh, we're going to say Texas a lot uh, tonight. And we're going to start out by talking about a Texan that we lost since the last time we broadcast. And that, of course, is Meatloaf, otherwise named, otherwise known as Marvin. What's the last name? O'Day. O'Day. Uh, Great. I guess he comes from the same city uh, or near about uh, the same city as uh, Stevie Ray. So uh, we got us a. A lot of Texans. Um, And I want to talk about the elephant in the room before we go any further. And that involves the controversy between Neil Young and uh, Spotify and Joe Rogan. And uh, as you can imagine, this has been a very difficult week for us as we are caught between these two worlds. Uh, We love the music and we're podcasters. So we've been caught in the middle and all of you who've sent us notes uh, offering us uh, your your prayers and, and, and giving us your courage. We appreciate that a great deal. But most of the emails have been about what side are we going to take? Um, are we going to remove our content from Spotify? Uh, that may tip the balance. 
Um, I don't know if y'all know Joe Rogan. He has a podcast also. And uh, we're thinking about, uh, or actually, it's already happened. We've invited Neil Young and Joe Rogan to appear on This Is Vinyl Tap to see if we can mend things up. So uh, we haven't heard back from them yet. Which well, and Joe, Joe lives in Austin. Yeah. So he might even be able to come over. Um, <laughs> it would be, I'd like to give him a, a hand on his podcast, getting the word out there about his podcast. We always like to help other podcasts. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I think he's struggling a bit with people actually listening to his, uh, <laughs> what he has to say about stuff. Yeah. So anyway, we're, we're doing our best in that controversy. Yeah. Um, so Doug. Yes. This is your album. This is uh-huh. your pick. This is a uh, an album that uh, I believe you and JM probably both would have picked, and an album that I likely would not have even thought of. So, Doug, <laughs> well, uh, why did you pick this album, Texas Flood, by the late great Stevie Ray Vaughan? It is inevitable that we would do this record up. Uh, this album came out right after I walked out of high school and right before I got to college. So um, Stevie Ray was already big in Austin before that. But when this album came back out in combination with uh, Let's Dance, which we'll talk about later, he became uh, a phenomena. And Austin, it's funny the way Austin will embrace some stars and other stars who are just as good, they won't pay attention to. But they embraced, Austin embraced Stevie Ray like no one since Willie Nelson. And um, there's a statue of Stevie Ray down on uh, Town, Town Lake. Lake, which everybody's yeah. very familiar with. And um, he he just was <clears throat> everywhere. And and I'm sure James <clears throat> the same way. I, I don't know how many times I saw Stevie Ray. I don't know. Uh, it seemed like every time I was uh, at a, any kind of outdoor festival he was playing. Um, I, yeah, I have no idea how many times I've, I've saw him play. I, well, I can I can remember being the, I can have I have a distinct memory of being on um, uh, Town Lake uh, Auditorium Shores, and I've, I have an elbow on the stage watching him, and uh, uh, yeah, he, it was packed, and he and it, I mean he's one one thing I'm going to concede tonight is. He is so much more live than he is on record. Uh, mm-hmm. That's there's no question about that. Yeah. I, I don't think it's that unusual that Austin felt the need to uh, embrace C. Ray Vaughn. I mean, Austin is and has been kind of a hub for the blues, its own mm-hmm. style, which may, I mean, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg is yeah. the Austin style of blues that we think about now because of Sir Ray Vaughan, or was he an outcropping of that? And it just became more known because he was its ambassador. I don't know. Cause it's, de- it's definitely not Chicago blues. No, it's, nope. it's a, it's a different feel and a different style. So um, yeah, I mean, when you've got a country music legend, which Austin's also had its feet firmly in that ground, like Willie, it's going to embrace that. And you got a blues legend like uh Ray Vaughan, um, yeah. So it's not that surprising <laughs> to me. I, I want to say a couple of things before we dive into this, because I am obviously the odd man out on this particular episode. Uh, 
anybody who's listened to previous episodes knows I am not the biggest fan of the blues. And, and I've even, uh, as I was growing up, had a bit of disdain for Steve Ray Vaughan, which uh, I, I regret because the listening to this and, and, and you guys have done this to me a number of times. I think we've done this to each other where we, because we've picked an album, we've had to kind of put a different set of ears on and listen to it differently. Um, while this is not my type of music, there's no questioning this guy's talent. And, and, and uh, I have to say, you have to respect that the guy's an unbelievable guitarist. The odd thing is I've always liked his voice. I've always thought his voice yeah. is really cool. Um, it so- seems like it is exactly perfect for the music what, he's doing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think you're right, but it's, it's also distinctive enough to where it, you know, it's, it's what it is. I've always, I've always, so I've always loved that his voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny as Rolling Stone editor, Kurt Lauder, Asserted, Loader. Loader asserted yeah. that Bond did not possess a distinctive voice. <laughs> well, he's wrong. He's, he's very wrong. wrong. I think even uh, John Lee Hooker said he had the best voice in the blues at the time. Um, except for John Lee Hook. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, and you know, waters. <laughs> uh, and the other thing I realized in listening to this album this week is how I know almost every inch of this album, and I didn't think I would have, mm-hmm. but it was it was either played on the radio with me growing up, it was either on MTV, early MTV, and I saw it, or there were tons of mediocre texas blues musicians and dank dark clubs that my friends drug me to that i mm-hmm. for the better, you know so i've known that played this stuff so i've well, known this music of I mean, the better part go, when you go out to uh, uh a, a place they're playing it all the time huh? yeah, yeah i mean i've known this music for the better part of my life so uh i'm just throwing that out there because i i don't want to be a negative nelly or i guess negative uh neville <laughs> or whatever you want to say uh <laughs> about this album I, I do want to approach it with a little bit of nuance because i think it deserves that so for those of you who are hoping i was going to sit here and just badmouth steer avon the whole episode i'm going to sadly disappoint you because i don't think that's going to do him any service it might be funny yeah. but it wouldn't do the album <laughs> the album deserves better than that so i just go from there i when i first started listening when i first heard stevie ray Vaughan, when i first heard him on the radio I thought the album was kind of boring because I'd seen him. The only time I'd ever really seen him was live, and I thought he was incredible. And he also was doing some of the songs that he was doing on his next album, which I think is a I like more than this album. I think it's a little bit um, it's not as uh, mundane or that's not the word I'm looking repetitive. The next album is Couldn't Stand the Weather. I remember when that song came out, I just thought it was the, one of the greatest things I'd ever heard. I'd never heard anything like that. It didn't really sound like the blues to me. Like, But when I heard Stevie Ray Vaughan, when I heard this album, even the song, Texas Flood, it's a, it's a blues song. 
everything sounded really bluesy to me. And I was kind of like you, Tony, I, the blues, I just wasn't really into the blues. I really didn't know. And again, I, I think that it wasn't until later that I really appreciated this album yeah. uh, because you can see that Stevie is really steeped in the blues and he does take it into a different direction on this album. So I, this album, you know, it was later that I gained an appreciation for this album. I still think Couldn't Stand the Weather is better, but well, um, I do like this album. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to play a game of connections where I ask our producer and our co-host to answer one simple question. What does this album and artist have to do with places we've already been, albums we've already talked about? Well, the obvious, the obvious one is Bowie. Okay, there yeah. we go. Tony's got got Bowie. He played else? on "Let's Dance." Um, the other one is John Hammond. He uh, that's got right. Uh, that artist on his, the artist. And that and John Hammond was with uh, Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan. He discovered. All right, both so we have Bowie. Uh, Dylan and Springsteen, and there's one other very obvious one. Jackson Brown. There he is. The album was recorded at Jackson Brown's studio, and Jackson Brown discovered was the first one to kind of take notice of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I guess not, not, Bowie and Jackson Brown at the same time. Yeah, not only was it recorded in the studio, it was recorded on tape that was used for his uh, Lawyers of Love album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just recorded over it, which I, I think I'm okay with that. Thank, yeah, <laughs> thank God for that. Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I wonder what that says about his uh, <laughs> his feelings about that record. Well, that was, it was kind of recorded. an easy one, and uh, I'm sorry if I missed some of the more subtle things, but I never... Uh, oh, um, there is a connection with Eric Clapton, unfortunately. Oh, um, that's right. The that occurred at a, uh, Clapton's organized event. That's yeah. right. So, And, of course, they both had hideous addictions. Yeah. Well, and, and what I was going to say uh, earlier about Siri Vaughn's uh, approach to the blues. I saw an interview with him where he was talking about that. And he said, the reason why he didn't feel tied to being a traditionalist is because while he came from a, a very traditional point, you know, of the blues, a lot of Chicago blues, black blues artists, he, when he heard crossroads, IE, uh, or not IE, but crossroads, the cream song where Clapton's on it. He, um, he realized that he could, you could reinterpret the blues and come up with something completely ex different and exciting. So see Ray Vaughn had one foot stuck in that traditional blues world. And the other foot stuck in that British blues world, guitar, what? rock and roll blues world. And that's kind of why, I mean, he takes the best of both of those and creates something very unique. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. that's, I, I think about that. I th always think about it as a badminton game between, the United States and the UK um, where it's those uh, American artists were heard by the Brits and you have Jimmy Page, everybody that came out of John Mahoney's uh, Blues Breakers, uh, all the yard, all those guys picking mm -hmm. up these sounds from uh, black artists in the United States and then throwing it back over. And then we have these guys over here that take what they're doing and incorporate it. And I think, uh, Hendrix was part of that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And they throw it back over. It's just going back and forth. And uh, Stevie Ray emerged and uh, reclaimed that guitar thing for the Americans at a really critical time. Well, and I think when we get when we start talking more about the album in depth, uh, it's important to just think about it in terms of uh, that this is very much rock infused blues. I mean, it's got it. It's got it. It. it uh, there's a point. I think a point uh, early in his career when he ended up going with a band that someone had asked his brother Jimmy to join. Jimmy's like, I'm not gonna. You play rock and roll. I ain't playing that crap. And so they got Stevie to do it. So I think Stevie, as he said in this interview, is inf- infinitely more open to kind of incorporating that stuff. And I think once again, once we start talking about this album, it's it's obvious that it's not. It's while well, it's very bluesy, it's. Uh, it's definitely it's a through. Lot, a, it's a lot more. And JM about the next album. Uh, the next album, he goes way out. And, and of yeah. course, it's much more Hendrixy than this one. Yeah, and I think that that's another thing. I, I don't think that you can discount the influence that Jimi Hendrix had on on his playing. Um, but well, that's it, obvious I, when we talk about one song in particular. I think. Tonight, yeah. But yeah, and but it's much more. Well, even he even covers a. Uh, that's Jimmy my point. Yeah. Next up, yeah, yeah, he does a great job with Little Wing. Um, yeah, Stevie growing up in a, in a wonderful household, <laughs> and he was raised right, and we know he was raised right because I have no his idea. Parents brought him up playing Bob Wills records. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Doug, Doug, you're always trying, uh, rightfully so, always trying to bring Bob Wills into the podcast. <laughs> uh, one of the things that uh, they that they say is that. Uh, some members of the Texas Playboys would come over to their house and play dominoes and pick guitars, and uh, that, wow. they got an early taste of great music. Well, he was born in Dallas, in Oak Cliff, in Dallas, uh, in the mid '50s. Um, we won't hold that against him that he was born in Dallas. Um, <laughs> so he did end up moving to Austin as soon as he could, but you know, yeah, sooner um, than he should have. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's his early, the early history is pretty interesting because of all the different bands he was in. Um, but, um, he was obviously talented enough to where when he was in high school, he enrolled in an uh, experimental arts program in SMU, uh, and, uh, you know, for music and, um, but he dropped out of it before graduation because he wanted to be, um, he wanted to actually play. And so he ends up moving to Austin in 72. Um, I'm, I'm glossing over some of his early band, earlier bands. Um, and I'm happy to talk about them if either one of you guys want to, but. Um, well, they have cool names. Go ahead, Doug. Blackbird, Chantones, the Cracker Jacks. Of course, today we would say uh, Caucasian Jack. Uh, Epileptic Marshmallow. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Was that a blues band, Epileptic Marshmallow? I have no idea. That, that, sounds, that sounds like somebody had been listening to Psychedelic, uh, I mean, the 13th Floor Elevator. Exactly. You know, exactly. <laughs> they, uh, the, they had the Nightcrawlers, the Cobra. Well, that's the, that's the one I was going to start with, because yeah. I think that's kind of the point to start is the Nightcrawlers. So he, and the, but, he did have a little time with uh, Jimmy Vaughn's band. Um, yeah. I, I I've always heard that if you want to get Jimmy really mad, you call him Jimmy Ravon. <laughs> 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 
that's it's, he, that's got to be one of the hardest big brother jobs in the entire yeah. world yeah yeah we won't get into any of the details about about their relationship but it was not it wasn't always the the best relationship the two it of always them seems like especially in the early days really gracious to me though so the first band i think worth mentioning or talking about is is this band the Nightcrawlers that you mentioned doug for a couple of reasons one is um it is uh it's the first band he ends up uh recording with um and it's also the band where he ends up meeting doyle bramall who figures prominently in his life Mm -hmm. um throughout but so the nightcrawlers were a band that was formed by bram hall and this guy named mark benno uh who was a texas singer songwriter guitarist piano player he'd been a session guy for a long time decade or more he played with Rita coolidge he played on some doors albums um and he recorded a yeah (laughs) recorded a couple of doors go by without saying that come on that's true like Uh, eagles and letting it go by (laughs) (laughs) he recorded a couple albums with leon russell uh under the name asylum choir this is Mark Benno I'm talking about. And then yeah. in the in the 70s, he started, he wanted to do solo stuff. So he put this band together and he called the Nightcrawlers. It was ba- the bassist was Tommy McClure. The key- keyboardist was this guy named Billy Etheridge. The drummer was Doyle Bramall. And then this young hotshot guitarist by the name of Stevie Vaughn. There was no, yeah. no, yeah, didn't Ray, go by no Ray, Ray yet. For the longest time. Right? Um, yeah. And then, of course, the Ray. you got to earn, earn Ray. <laughs> you can call me Ray. <laughs> um, so they, young people. Yeah, he uh, they end up becoming pretty, pretty legendary in the Austin music scene in the 70s. Um, and they go to record their debut album, which is going to be called Crawling. And it's recorded in, in uh, Sunset Sound Studios in Hollywood for A&M Records. And it's the earliest recorded music with Stevie Ray Vaughan on it before they finish it or right around the time they finish it, they end up going on tour with the Jay Giles band and humble pie, who also had a pretty uh, fantastic guitarist at the time by the name of Peter Frampton. Um, But when they get back from the tour, the label soured on the blues. And so they shelve that album. It's never released until 2009 when this label called blue skunk music released it. So they just shelved it. Uh, Bramall, one of the earliest influences he has is on Stevie is his, is the way he sings. Stevie Ray Vaughan said he liked the way Doyle Bramall sung, so he tried to emulate that as much as possible. Um, anyway, he ends up <clears throat> after that in '75, he ends up joining a band called Paul Ray and the Cobras. what's pretty important about that timing is for anybody who knows history of Austin blues a year after that band forms Antones opens up. Antones is probably the most legendary blues club in Texas, but it's a, became not just a a blues hub, but it gave um, a lot of uh, musicians in Austin their start, but it was primarily known for the blues. The guy who ran it was a really colorful guy by the name of Clifford Antone. And uh, he was kind of an amateur musician himself, and he started that um, that that club, and he actually even created a record label that a and, lot of Texas blues artists were on. Right, and there's still a not only a club named after him, there's still a pretty great little record store. Yeah, 
also it used named to be, after him. Yeah, it was across the street from the old the, Antones. When it was, it was on there. Guadalupe, yeah. Yeah. But the cl- yeah. the record store is still there, Antones Records, and it's a great, it's yeah. a great record store. Yeah. Anyway, so uh he ends up uh leaving the Cobras um and playing with a band called Triple Threat, which included Luann Barton and WC Clark. And that band ends up sort of evolving into double trouble. Uh and uh, Double Trouble is, of course, the band that he ends up sticking with. But uh, they mm-hmm. they devolve further into just basically a power trio. I guess you'd call it a blues power trio. Mm-hmm. By the early '80s, this band, Siri Vaughn and Double Trouble, is getting pretty good legendary status as well. I mean, he's had legendary status, but this band's getting legendary status throughout Austin and Texas, and it starts to get a rep outside of Texas. Um, and then his big break happens, and he's invited to the I'm gonna Montreux, Montreux. Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. And uh is the, they are the first band in the history of the festival to play without having a major record contract. Mm-hmm. Who sees him at that festival? I, I guess more than the uh now now that uh history has gone by, everybody uh sees him at that festival. It's like everyone everyone was at uh Woodstock. But uh we do know that uh David Bowie was at that show. And um despite the fact that he was booed by he was booed pretty ferociously at that show. I think that's on video. I think I'll watch that. Um see Ray Vaughn was booed. I'm yeah. sorry, that's right. Uh but not by David Bowie. David Bowie heard something there. And well, Jackson Brown was there as well and saw him. Right. Yeah. They both were. So uh, at least two people didn't boo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and those are the two that you want on your side right there. Uh, well, they're the two that are instrumental in in his fame kind of skyrocketing, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. and the interesting thing is Bowie was at a strange time in his career. Uh, he had put out some albums that were really good, but did not sell a lot. And, uh, <laughs> that's about to he change. Was, he, was, he was already for a that's hit. A, yeah. Yeah. So that's about to change. <laughs> he, decides, he decides he needs a, a big change. And one of the things he wants is, uh, I guess a, a more American sound and a, a more uh how would you describe the sound he's trying to go after jam he gets i would say yeah american sound is good more like a a, a much more of a pop sound he really wanted it uh well, he wanted it he wanted it's like guys to the early up. 80s yeah he wanted it to have some of the african-american um uh seasoning on it that i guess he got in a, a booth with a uh, eno for too long and all that went away <laughs> That's that's where uh, that's where Stevie came in to lay down some licks. And- well, he got uh, the, yeah. The producer was Nile Rogers, and that he was kind of the hot producer at well, the time. And um, he, yeah, he he was kind of tasked with making the album sound more pop oriented, more American. That album, which was elite Let's Dance, which was released in 1983, I think, right before Texas Flood. Mm-hmm. Became David Bowie's first platinum studio album in the U.S. So think about that. That's wild. Yeah, that is wild. Think about that. The title song was a number one hit around the world, and Bowie is all of a sudden no longer the biggest cult musician on the planet. He's a superstar, and Siri Vaughn's guitar 
is all over that. Um, I saw the Let's Dance tour, and there were Where's Stevie signs all over the uh, <laughs> so the stadium. The let's, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. So it's funny. Um, while the band, while Double Trouble, Stevie Ray and uh, Double Trouble are in L.A. recording at Jackson Brown Studio. The phone rings one night and the drummer, Chris Layton, answers it and it's Bowie on the phone. And so he runs into Stevie's room, wakes him up, says, get up, David Bowie's on the phone. <laughs> so they get on, they talk for a little while. And uh, and what Bowie says is he wants to fly him up to New York to lay some tracks, some, some guitar tracks down on this music that they're doing for this album because he loved what he heard at the festival. And they also talk a bit about Siri Vaughn's band opening for him on the tour so that's in stevie ray vaughn's mind as he goes to new york as well as the other musicians hey this is a huge opportunity right so uh as as um jam mentioned niles rogers is i guess he had handpicked most of the musicians that were on this album except yeah. for stevie ray vaughn stevie ray vaughn was yeah. the only one and when he came in uh, and her and he and now Rogers heard what he was doing. His initial response was, "Why didn't we just get Albert King to do this?" Um, <laughs> and, and he actually said that in earshot of Siri Vaughn. And he said, on hindsight, he felt pretty bad about that because that was not you know a very professional yeah. thing to do. But he was also extremely intimate or uh, impressed by him because Siri Stevie was not intimidated at all. He knocked his solos out in no time. Um, and he and he kind of knew what he was doing in the in the uh, in the studio. Um, so Ray Benson and Siri Vaughn are buddies, and Siri Vaughn comes comes back to Austin after this time laying down tracks on Let's Dance. And he says, uh, he's like, wow, Bowie, what was that like? And what'd you play? And, and uh, according to according to Ray Benson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, his quote is, I sprayed Albert King all over that blank, <laughs> um, which is a pretty funny quote. But the other funny story is, is that uh, Siri Ray Vaughan got uh, ribs shipped up from Sam's Barbecue while they were recording <laughs> he's like i gotta get these guys some real barbecue and sam's barbecue is a famous austin joint i mean it's, that's it's, that's so funny because i watched a video on uh youtube <laughs> and it said uh they said that stevie ray Vaughan even got barbecued chicken wings sent up and i as soon as i heard that i went no there's no, no was... way he asked <laughs> I don't even got, remember seeing chicken wings way back then. No, it was rib, ribs, ribs from Sam's. <laughs> so, so the impact of him playing on that on that album, and particularly that song, which is a huge hit for Bowie, is that other people start hearing it. So Clapton hears this guitar solo on "Let's Dance" and says, he, he said he stopped his car and he said, "I got to know who that guitar player is. Not tomorrow, but today." So, uh, and then also another another Texas guitarist, uh, the first time he heard Siri Vaughn was, this is Steve Miller, was on Let's Dance. And uh, he said he was jumping out of his seat screaming, who the hell is playing that guitar? <laughs> so, uh, so it had a huge impact on people. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, Tony. I'm not sure what it was that they heard, but I guess these guys are just fantastic guitar players themselves. They just must, they well, have an ear for something that we don't. Also... How old were you when you first heard Stevie Ray? 
Yeah, but here's uh, the, yeah, it's true. Here's the, you had you didn't have all those years of 15, not hearing Stevie yeah. Ray. Yeah. Oh, that's true. <laughs> there, there's a bit of a uh, uh, kind of a he said she said about the what the happens breakup. after mm-hmm. about what yeah. happens after this. So uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan actually went up to New York and and rehearsed with the band that was going to tour for Let's Dance. Carlos Alomar, who's a guitarist, um, was the musical director for the tour. And he said that he realized immediately there was going to be an issue, mainly because Stevie couldn't read music. And so he was trying to figure out how this was going to work. Um, But they ended up working something out. And so they all felt comfortable that he was going to be able to be okay on the tour and and play some of Bowie's earlier stuff. What happens is... uh, this start this starts to blow get blown out of proportion a little bit in terms of Bowie's people's viewpoint. The Dallas Morning News runs a story on uh, with Stevie, uh, a big picture of Stevie on the on the cover, and a little picture of Bowie, and it says Dallas's <laughs> favorite son, and uh, and Lenny Bailey, who was Stevie's wife at the time, uh, <laughs> ends up. Uh, going to the rehearsals and throwing the paper down in front of Bowie and yelling something about Steve Ray Vaughn not getting his due. So she starts immediately causing issues. Um, Stevie Ray Vaughn's also getting people whispering in his ear that maybe this is the best thing for his career to be a sideman on this tour when he's got this, uh, this album that's about to be released. And, and, uh, and then it comes to fruition that double trouble is not actually going to open on the tour. And so, long story short, because of all this contention, Siri Vaughn ends up backing out of the tour. Um, depending on who you're talking to, uh, he tried to actually hold them hostage and get him, get Bowie's group to agree to the terms that they had talked about um, orally. That didn't happen. Or, depending on who you're talking to, Siri Vaughn realized that this was a bad idea and just said, I'm not going to do it. Um, regardless, he ends up backing out of the tour. They, he does not he does not um, play uh, live with um, with Bowie um, and the legend is created that Siri Vaughn essentially uh, you know takes the high road yeah. and, and backs out and says I'm gonna do my own thing I've got my own thing going thanks but no thanks it's obviously more nuanced than that but there, yeah um, and he, he there's a couple other things I mean Stevie was already in the throes of his addiction. Um, so he was not probably not the easiest guy to work with. Well, I think, I think he and his wife were both kind of in that issue. So having the two of them together in the rehearsal studio probably wasn't real fun. Yeah. And the guy that made it sound like it was David Bowie's uh, fault was the same guy who said that, uh, Stevie Ray had chicken fingers sent up to New York. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. That should settle that dispute. Yeah. But you know, it was, I can't imagine Stevie Ray on that, that tour because, I've seen videos of it. I wasn't Doug. You've actually seen the tour, but it just seems like everybody was kind of in character, and there was just yep. some um, like it I can't have been imagine a horrible fit. Stevie Ray is just a a master showman himself when he's on stage. He yeah. uh, back he would play guitar backwards. He'd do the same thing with like Hendrix would do with play with his teeth. I mean, he was uh, we'd sling the guitar around. Uh, he wouldn't break it, thank God. But he, um, um, yeah, there was just stuff that he would. He wasn't just. Yeah, he was. Yeah, Fernando. He was very theatrical when he was playing, but not in a role sort of way. More, in my opinion, 
uh, there's nobody more fun to watch on uh, play the guitar than than Stevie Ray. And uh, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. One is he um, he never looks at his hands or the fretboard. It's almost always has his eyes closed. Mm-hmm. And you can see that he's sitting there listening to himself going, oh, this is so good. It's killing me. Uh, I mean, I've never seen anybody enjoy themselves so much. And then the other thing is he's not a careful guitar player. And if you watch him, he's using, he's a lot like Hendrix in the way they play. They, uh, Hendrix, and, and but, but I think Stevie more, Stevie's playing almost all the strings, almost all the time. Yeah. And he's instead of, um, being I, I was watching Eric Johnson today on YouTube and I think two guys out of Austin couldn't be more different in their styles. Eric <laughs> Johnson is so careful and so precise and Stevie, he mutes strings as yeah. much as he plays strings, which mm-hmm. gives him that incredible shuffle uh, sound that he's got. Yeah. But it is so fun to watch. Uh, get on YouTube and look up Stevie Ray on Austin well, city limits and you'll see what we're talking about. Anyway, going back to the recording of the album, so Jackson Brown, when he saw him at the saw Stevie at that festival in in uh, was it Switzerland? Um, yeah, or Sweden Montrose, or whatever. Montrose, Switzerland. Yeah, uh, offers them some studio time in his studio in L.A. and they take him up on it. And as we mentioned, they recorded over some tape for Lawyers in Love, but uh, that's a pretty cool thing, man. Uh, yeah, with Jackson yeah. Brown was willing to do that. That's a pretty, I mean, that's an impressive sort of, you know, I want to give this guy, I want to give this guy some time to, cause I see something yeah. there type of thing, you know? Yeah. And the recording of that is uh, kind of remarkable. They, it was Jackson Brown studio. It, um, they spent a day just setting up the, the uh, recording just to set up for the recording the whole album, the rest of the album was recorded in two days after they set up. They had three days in that uh, studio and they recorded it in three days. And I think most of it was done pretty much live as they they played, they, played it, you know, when they were playing the songs. There also. was no overdubs there. Yeah. And they just the way that uh, Tommy Shannon described it or maybe it was Chris uh, Whipper Layton. Um, they were in a circle just looking at each other. And a couple of other things I want to bring up about this. First of all, um, there were two amps that were that Stevie Ray Vaughan was using. Both of them were um, Fender Vibroverbs. Uh, I don't know if anybody is a guitar or guitar amp geek, kind of like I am, but that was the first Fender amp that had reverb. Besides a tube screamer, that is the only effect that Stevie Ray Vaughan used on his guitar. So a tube screamer is uh, something that kind of came around in the late 70s, early 80s. It became really popular with heavy metal players, but it it gives your guitar just a little bit of, dis- well, not a little bit. Didn't, it can give your guitar a lot of distortion. Didn't Gilmore play one, with one of those? Uh, yeah, uh, Gilmore played with the tube screamer. It, it, but it, what it does is it boosts the middle end quite a bit, but you can add a lot of distortion to it if you want, or a little bit of distortion to it. But those are, that's the only pedal that Stevie Ray Vaughan was using on this. Another thing that's interesting is for another, if you're a mic geek, like I am, uh, he, they recorded the guitars through one cabinet and it was a sure 
57 microphone, a Shure 57 microphone, uh, SM57 microphone is like a hundred bucks. Is that what we use for the podcast? <laughs> no, you're not. You're using a uh, 50. I got a Shure beta. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would not have bought this if I knew it said beta on it. <laughs> um, so Stevie Ray, that that's how the album was re- recorded. A couple of things about, I want to say about Stevie Ray's playing that gives it such a unique style. Stevie Ray Vaughan, if you ever play along with him, he's kind of frustrating to play along with because he tunes his guitar down a half step. So where you're normally making an E chord, uh, you're actually making an E flat chord. But because he tuned his guitar down, he can use heavier gauge strings. And so the strings that he uses are usually associated with like those hollow body jazz guitar players. They're known as 13s. I usually use to just give you a a lot of guitar players that really like to bend notes and everything will use like a eights or nines. Um, But he uses a 13. But the thing is, because he's got his guitar tuned down a half step, he can just really bend those strings. And they, uh, he likes to really dig into the, uh, the fretboard when he plays. So it gives his playing just a very unique sound. Another thing that's odd is he blues is played a lot of times out of E. And, um, but E is known as a bright chord. A E flat is known as a soft chord. It's a so or a, a soft key. So that's what a lot of ballads and stuff are played in in E flat. So that's another thing that kind of gives his song his, in my opinion, almost gives his tunes almost a mournful sound to him, especially when he's playing out of E. He he's going back and forth from minor pentatonic to major pentatonic in almost every uh, solo, and mm-hmm. he splits the measure. The first two uh, notes are usually in the chord. And the next, uh, he releases into the pentatonic scale. And uh, I, there's a video uh, of someone covering how how distinct that sound is. Yeah. Uh, something I would never have picked up on my own, of course. But it's it's, yeah. it's very interesting to see these things he's doing that give him that sound. And in his strumming pattern, mm-hmm. um, the way he's Just that playing, heavy, it sounds yeah, like there's an, uh, it sounds like there's a uh, a guitar sounds like there's a rhythm guitar playing even when mm-hmm. it's just him. Uh, yeah. He accompanies himself in a pretty fine style. I wish I had the violation sound to go off because I have a question for Doug. It was I know spent, what this question is, by the it way. It was spent the last almost 60 episodes talking about how, A, he's a lyrics guy, and B, he doesn't like guitars that are uh, guitarists that play kind of all over the tune. Um uh, so I would like him to explain to me how two things that seem antithetical to your musical experience drive you to like this album so much. Excellent question. I'm always happy to uh, expand my opinion. Uh, very rarely am I asked for it, though. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty easy. On the lyrics, um, have you ever heard Mendelssohn's uh, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream? Uh, it's wonderful, and I love it, and, and there's no lyrics at all. Um, it's classical music, right? Uh-huh. I'm not talking so, about an instru- I'm not talking about instrumentals, Doug. I'm talking about songs yeah, that I'm have lyrics. Point, no. um, okay. When you switch 
genres and when you switch intention, uh, I think that lyrics um, that there was a review in the Rolling Stone, uh, their first review, the guy said that Stevie Ray didn't write good lyrics. And I, I laughed out loud because it's blues. Who yeah, writes blue, good no, lyrics no. in blues? I, uh, no. Yeah, and I and I'm I grant you that I'm not I'm not here making the argument that these lyrics should be better than they are. Okay, there's a distinction between me yeah. understanding this is blues music and there and the lyrics are in fact blues lyrics. So I'm talking about your somebody who often talks about lyrics and how okay. important they are. Um, I, I do think they're important in some kinds of music. Okay, no, but I think I, that's that's when fair. I'm listening to uh, jazz or. Uh, when I'm listening to Motown, I'm not I'm not looking for for interesting lyrics. Okay, but if, if I'm listening to folk and some kinds of rock and roll, if you're going to be playing in the game where you're trying to say something, you should say it. If you can say it well, I got you. There's no pretense of uh, being a poet here at all. So, okay. So that that's that a, leads us to the next question. Hold on. Yes, that's a simple. That's a very. Uh, I think that's a very good answer, and it actually uh, it was a kind of a quick a trick question because I assume that's what you're going to say because it makes sense. You know, <laughs> nobody's going to say that the blues needs to be lyrics heavy. Now, answering the second question, which is, you are an anti noodle guy, and this is a noodley album. Go right. ahead. So uh, it's it's almost the same, but. Blues is a call and response genre, just like uh, church music, where uh, where the preachers or who the lead singer sings, and then the uh, the the rest of the singers respond. Blues is that way, except the response comes from the guitar. So the voice throws out the theme and the question, like "Where's my baby?" and then. The guitar expands on that. So the noodling is the music. It's not as though there's this thing that the noodling is is taking away from it. Um, And most of the noodling I get upset with is uh, noodling where the the, uh, solo could be taken out and placed almost in any of the artist's other songs. That's fair. And okay. uh, yeah. the best, I'm going I'm uh, to quote Billy Gibbons, who's a fantastic guitar player, and deep into the blues, when he talked about uh, Eddie Van Halen, he says, this guy's technical ability is um, unmatched, but it's like he's playing without emotion or feeling. Uh, and I disagree because I think he's playing with glee, but I think that's yeah. about the only emotion he does. Um, <laughs> but I, I know what he's talking about because in the blues, when you say my baby left me, then the guitar's job is to express make, make how you feel. Feels. Yeah. And so you're going to be stretching strings. And when you watch Stevie Ray playing, it looks like he's strangling eels or something. <laughs> uh, and, and it's, it's all about these emotions He's putting out there. <laughs> All right, Tim, I would love for you to talk about the guy. I mean, we've talked about C. Ray Vaughn, but the other two guys on this album, Tommy Shannon and Chris oh. Layton. Well, Tommy Shannon is was kind of a established bass player. I think he had played with uh, Edgar Winter. And um, so he was kind of um, 
known in the area. And he actually was kind of, I won't, I won't say forced his way into being a member of, of double trouble, but he was very, he made it known to Stevie Ray Vaughan that if he uh, would let the other bass player go, he would be happy to take his place. And uh, <laughs> he certainly did. And then uh, Chris Whipper Layton, uh, he was just kind of a, you know, a man about town and um, he got started playing with uh, double trouble uh, when Luann Barton was on. And so he, uh, but he's got a uh, kind of both of those guys, Tommy Shannon and Chris Layton um, have since become kind of uh, popular. They, they played with um, another band called the Archangels that went on with the, with Charlie Sexton and Doyle Bramble. Who, who just son. came back together here recently. They did, yeah. But they are a fantastic rhythm section. Do not discount these guys. And uh, it's They're actually phenomenal. Pres- I would go watch are. the rhythm section without Stevie Ray. There's so much power and energy yeah. on that. It's amazing. Chris Whipper Layton is the one who is supposedly taught Stevie Ray Vaughan the sh- uh, blues shuffle. So a lot of the songs that, in fact, um, some of the first, the songs we're going to hear on this album has he's the master of the blues shuffle. By huh. the way, that's interesting. So, huh. but th- these two guys take off, and Stevie hadn't played a note yet, and you're in the club listening. I mean, it's you're already energetic and fired up, and yeah. then they lay it out there, and then here comes this guitar that's uh, yeah. from some other place that you've never been before. It's just incredible. Okay, boys, let's uh, start with track one, side one. Love struck baby. You got the love struck baby. And I know just what to do. Um, th- th- this, this is, is the most shop- obvious beginner of all the songs. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it and it's that it's the perfect way to say this is a guy who is not, is i mean this song is so much more accessible than if he'd started off with a straight blues song because it is that yeah. blend of rock and blues that we were talking about earlier I mean, well, it's, it sounds, blues, it's the blue shuffle that i was yeah. talking about um, well it sounds it sounds almost you know like a like a um, modern take on a chuck berry tune or something well, yeah me. yeah i can see that you know um i love the, the i mean that guitar just doesn't quit throughout this whole thing and i love the, the the chords that he's playing when he's not soloing it's all those high neck when he's going up the neck mm-hmm. doing all those chords uh, i think that is so well the, the cool. start the, yeah. i love the way it starts to say okay this is new with mm-hmm. that little that little rip at the beginning this is one that he, he starts out with just that high rip uh i guess he's playing some uh double stops or something at the at the top of the neck and you go, oh, here's a new guitar. Here's a new sound. Yeah. Here's a new guy. It, mm-hmm. It's everything just is brand new. And his voice is really yeah. cool on it. It's, it, it's a so good his, vo- his, his voice, I, I, I feel, uh, this is just me coming from somebody who's not a guitarist, I guess, is I feel a lot about Siri Vaughn's voice the same way I feel about Hendrix, is I don't think people give it enough credit for mm-hmm. being unique and, um, and you know, uh, emotive. But Siri Vaughn's voice is is what draws me to these songs, if anything does. I know that sounds weird because he's a guitarist, but I'm I'm not sure his voice would transfer to a different genre very successfully, but I think it's absolutely perfect where he is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. 
Moving on to song uh, number two on side one, Pride and Joy. My sweet little thing. She my pride and joy. She my sweet little baby. I'm a little lover boy. This was a this was a big deal for uh, for Steve Ray Vaughan. This song reached this was the first single on the album, it reached number twenty on the Billboard mainstream rock charts, and it was in heavy heavy rotation in MTV when there wasn't a whole lot being played on it. I think uh, either Tommy Shannon or Chris Layton said the song was played five to six times a day. Yeah, I read that <laughs> video. Um, and, and can you imagine uh, getting that kind of and that's when there wasn't a thousand other things to uh, look for music. I mean, it was a, it yeah. was a well, popular it was so th- this came out the same time as Les Stance. So this was in the same rotation as that yeah. was. So Siri Vaughn is getting, he's getting kind of double exposure for those, anybody paying attention to the Les Stance song. He's got the Bowie single, which is monstrous. And then this single, which was pretty big. Yeah. I, here's the thing. When you guys were talking about the shuffle on the first song, this sounds like a shuffle to me. It I'm is. not enough. I mean, more so than the other one, though. This sounds well, the more, other one's so fast. Yeah. The other one's a fast shuffle. This one is uh yeah, this one's a shuffle too, but it's a slow shuffle. <clears throat> there is a pretty remarkable acoustic version of this. He was mm-hmm. he played it on MTV Unplugged. He, he plays this song on a 12-string acoustic yeah. guitar. And it's yeah. you're looking at it going, How is he doing this on a 12-string? It's pretty yeah, incredible. It's, it's that churning guitar. His his right hand is just constantly moving. He never it, it like his right hand never stops moving. He's he doesn't look like Carlos Santana, where you can yeah. see he's aiming at particular strings yeah. real carefully. It's it's his whole hand seems to be flying up and down I, that thing. And well, I think that has everything to do with what you know. I saw an interview with him where he's saying how he just played what he felt and it just mm-hmm. came naturally to him. I mean, for a guy who is as good as he is and didn't and it and doesn't know how to read music and kind of came at it from a different point of view, I think that just comes natural that he's just you don't know what you, you can't tell what he's going to do next because maybe he doesn't know what he's going to do next. Yeah, he's got that thing that amp cranked up so loud he's got those big heavy strings and you never hear i guess you do hear mistakes sometimes i can't remember hearing mistakes (laughs) and for someone that's just not even looking and it's throwing his guitar around and it it just seems like it's it it makes me think that guy's not really playing that looks like it's a pre-recorded deal and that guitar is not even uh tuned yeah. turned up but you know it is yeah. because you just can't imagine somebody could carry on like that and not mess up mm-hmm. and he's not just hitting notes he's stretching and bending and getting crazy tones out of that uh guitar and he's a very busy blues guitar player if you compare his playing with anybody else it, it's like he gets twice the number of notes in as uh, most blues guitar players yeah well, that, that's that's what's so remarkable about watching him play this on a 12 acoustic 12 string because yeah. he's bending the strings on that too it just seems like that what he's doing shouldn't be it's like who picks up a 12 string and does that <laughs> you know yeah it's very strange so moving on to song number three on side one title track texas flood oh. Oh, 
song attributed to Larry Davis and J.W. Scott was released in 1958 originally. Yeah, I, you know, I always thought this was some like old Delta Blues song, something that was in the uh, Texas canon, but it's actually not. It, the, these two guys were actually members of uh, Bobby Blue Bland's band. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, so... Well, um, um, this is was doing the research on this depressed me enormously because <laughs> I was sure this was based on the flood, the Memorial Day flood that was, is that in 81? Yeah. Oh, the 81. one in Austin? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I remember that flood. I, it was, it just wiped out uh, uh, North Lamar. And I remember their pianos and Porsches up in trees all up and down. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, even I was... got on a sailboat uh, that I found <laughs> down at Peace Park and rode a sailboat all the way down to uh, Town Lake. <laughs> I, I wasn't living here at the time. I wasn't living in Austin at the time, but I remember going to Hutt's and they had pictures of that flood all over the wall. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. So, it, it, uh, but it wasn't about that. No, <laughs> it wasn't. To learn uh, it. No, in fact, I think it's just simply a guy using a flood. Uh, the As flood metaphor. metaphor for for his relationship. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's that. Um, it's that, all about so, relationships. <laughs> so according to Clifford Antone, uh, Stevie heard this song the first time uh, from Angela Stray uh, Straley, I guess. Is yeah. That yeah She's a, blue, a Texas blues stringer singer, yeah. and the three of them, uh, well, the two of them, kind of coached. According this is again according to Clifford Antone, kind of coached Stevie on this song and what to do. And he says, "I remember sitting on the stage and the three of us just kind of going through it." Um, I think yeah. this on this album may be one of the best reviewed songs on this album i and it's a it's a fantastic song um there's one thing i want to point out yeah but it's that it's deceptively a a traditional blues song it's actually in 12 8 and what's weird about that is yeah what's weird about that is it's like is it it like is it a fast waltz or two fast waltzes put together or is it uh you know common time just done really fast but even though it doesn't uh, it it sounds like it, I mean if it's in twelve eight it's it, it sounds like it should be going faster than it is but the way that they play it yeah it's I wonder it, how it, that came slower. about that sounds like something a drummer would come up with yeah but it wasn't <laughs> but it's still it's it's it, I've always thought there was something odd about this song I never could wrap my head around it and I read about it today it's actually think, in twelve eight I think with uh, him hanging out in Antones he actually got to meet Larry Davis and play with him a couple of times Joseph, yeah yeah i think he did he was a guitar player and bass player um well he plays yeah he actually plays bass on the original on the uh version of texas flood he did he's not the yeah. guitarist on it. he's playing the bass yeah. on it um okay uh song four side one tell me why written by chester burnett who's that well, Alan Wolf. Alan Wolf song. Who's one of my favorite blues guys of all time. So, Jam, I I was thinking about you when I was doing the kind of digging around on this song, and I read that he plays this Telecaster that belonged to a member of Vanilla Fudge. Yeah. On this song. (laughs) And and that it had a, it had a, uh, 
it had a Fender treble pickup in it, which is why the guitar sounds so bright on this song compared to some of the other stuff. But yeah, Tellys are tend to be have a brighter sound than um, Strats do, and their their neck tends to be thinner. So, um, and Stevie Ray Vaughan liked really big, neck, really uh, wide necks. So yeah, it's going to give it a little bit of a, a different sound on on this one. But, this, um, this is a song he plays. Everybody starts dancing in the whole place. Yeah, <laughs> it's an, and it's another blues shuffle. I mean, it's a yeah. great, it's a, it's a great little dance tune. And anytime you got a shuffle, you can usually dance to it. So, oh, um, yeah. well, that's what they're well. And there's about. a there's a particular, if I may, just say this is a particular type of of uh, dancing that's that I remember and seeing when Austin in Austin when blues going to see blues bands or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> you guys are going to take offense to this, but some middle-aged guy with a bald head and a ponytail standing by himself <laughs> with a beer in his hand, kind of moving around on his own. That's the image I get. <laughs> well, that, that's every, every time I go see a, a band, I see that guy. <laughs> Maybe he just goes from place to place. I, don't uh, know. I, think, I just think there's a lot more of them now. Um, all right, so we're going to end Inside One with an Isley Brothers song, Testify. Stevie's turned into an instrumental. Yeah. Um, and what's the and what's the big deal about the Isley Brothers version of this one, Jam? This, yeah, this is the one that Jimi Hendrix uh, played on. And That's it's right. uh, got his guitar solo. It's, it's one of, um, a lot of people think it's the precursor to uh, the Are You Experience? Like you can hear Jimmy's guitar style coming into, coming into I, tour. I imagine most of the people listening to our podcast are, are musically intelligent and know that Jimi Hendrix was a session guy for a long time. So this was recorded yeah. in 64 by the Isley brothers and Hendrix was, he was a, a member of the session. Isley brothers, wasn't he? Yeah. Was he? he was a okay. member of their, I, and I, he was at least a member of their touring band, but I think he was a full. full yeah. It's probably hard to nail down. Who's a member of a band like that. Yeah. This is my absolute favorite on the record. Because, really? Oh yeah. I feel like, Everybody in the band gets to do exactly what they want mm-hmm. and they're going full blast. And uh, it's just one, it's one amazing solo and then a little break and then a completely different, amazing solo. And to watch him play this, um, yeah, I, I can watch him play this over and over and over again. Uh, we'll flip the record over and get to side two. First song on side two is Rude Mood, which is a Stevie Ray Vaughan original. was nominated for a grammy for it was best rock it, instrumental um, i believe uh sting won yeah is that right i think so <laughs> um it's another instrumental um it's a really fast boogie woogie tune um i i like it very clean it's it's uh, i think it, there's hardly anything on 
Stevie's it's, guitar. It's unlike the rest of the guitar player uh, yeah, on the yeah. record. He yeah. describes it in an interview. He says, uh, perfect name for it because it's mean sounding. It sounds like it's the guy playing in a rude mood, is what he says. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, think, I don't think that. I think it sounds happy. I think Testify sounds like a guy's in a rude mood. Really? I get that. It's always confused me. Huh. It this sounds a little just happy, kind of... like he's skipping around playing all these uh, high notes. And there's. Have you guys ever heard the Lightning Sky Hop this is based on? No, I haven't. Mm-mm. I just wondered. I haven't either. I just wondered what what that like if you yeah. can tell or not. But, uh, um, yeah, it's, but it's a it's a fine song, and I I remember I used to try to play this song when I was learning guitar. Uh, if we've said all we want to about rude mood, we're going to move to on to Mary. I just want to be on record as not understanding why this is rude. It sounds like the happiest song on the album to me. It's always made me crazy. No, noted. Uh, right. uh, moving on to. Uh, Mary had a little lamb, which is a buddy guy based on a buddy guy song. I think it's slightly it is a buddy different. guy song. Well, it's yeah. slightly different than the buddy guy version. Mary had a little lamb. His face was white as snow, yeah. Everywhere the towel went, you know the lamb was sure to go, yeah. He followed her to school one day. I, I think they're both good. Here's a great example of what, why do I give a song called Mary had a little lamb, a pass. Yeah. Um, Explain. It's, it's the whole, the whole thing is it's for the, it's for the music and, and it's taking this cute little thing and just making this, uh, <laughs> Yeah. This, do this, we, do we want it some bite that it would? <laughs> there's absolutely no way it could have. Otherwise. Well, it's it's funny. Yeah. It's it's yeah. funny when Buddy Guy does it. It's mm-hmm. why why are you doing it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this about this about this version of it. Um, it it it's kind of is a um, is a place for him to showcase a bunch of different styles like the, yeah. the guitar yeah. on it is kind of all over the place in a good way i mean i listen i'm not a big super fan of this song but it is enjoyable to listen to what he's doing with it so. i love that opening riff i mean i mm-hmm. think that's just that you don't hear a lot of blues songs that start off like that you got to sing it quietly and then that provides a, a he sets that and it, it it provides this empty space for the guitar to come in and there's a big contrast between his singing and when that guitar comes in. I do think his vocals are cool on this. It's, it's, it's less perfect of his, for his voice. Yeah. It's less belting and he's, it's more like he's, he, I don't want to crooning's not the right word, but he's, you know, he's up close to the mic and he's not. Uh, well, one of the things that he is, is he's the coolest person on stage. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is real cool. The way he's, and, and by cool, I mean, unemotional backed off. Yeah almost yeah. lazy and he he can really express that part of himself on this mm-hmm. um he I, I just think uh you got to see uh him play live you can't you have to watch him on video but um to understand what i'm talking about we'll, we'll post it we'll post the live version of this song on the uh on the website you know it's worth everybody's effort to watch one of his uh shows on austin city limits the yeah. whole thing Mm-hmm. Moving on to song number three on side two, Dirty Pool, which was co-written by Doyle Bramall. Oh, 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 oh. 
I don't know if this is going to come. I don't mean this to sound in a weird way, but this is the this is the first song for some reason to me that feels like Siri Vaughn has some emotional investment in it when he's playing. Um, I would say that this is probably the one that he may have. I don't know, maybe this one or Lenny, I can't figure out, but it may have put the most care into when he was recording it. Yeah, um, maybe that's what I'm hearing. I don't know. There's just something about this particular song that strikes yeah. me just slightly different than anything else on the album. You know, a good showcase for his guitar playing, his his ability to kind of um, slow things down and just hit some of those rapid... I think I, think I might like um, that Stevie yeah. Ray better than the other Stevie Ray, to be honest with you. Well, it's less bombastic and uh, a little bit more immediate, I guess, or a little bit more intimate. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, maybe that maybe that's it. I think it's uh, maybe some of his most interesting guitar work. It's probably also uh, one of my least favorites, even though I like it a lot. (laughs) Again, it's weird because while this isn't my favorite song, it's the one that I I. I find the most interesting to me. It's the stuff I think I was just saying to jam, but I like this Stevie Ray Vaughan the most, yeah. I guess. All right. So uh, moving on to song number four, side two, I'm crying. You know I love you, baby. I'll do anything for you. But when we start to fight and I just get these same old blues, I'm crying. What do I have to feel this way? I can't love my baby. I can't live another day. This song feels like Pride and Joy. I just said that. <laughs> I just said. Yeah. Did you say that? I didn't yeah. Hear you say that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've got it. It's it's I a slower version. I said crying couldn't be your favorite song because we've already heard it. <laughs> oh, but it does. I mean, so what's the point? I, everybody says that. Nobody has an answer to what's the point. Okay. Yeah. It's like a, a lesser, more upbeat version, if that makes any sense. It sounds slower to me, but um, I think he should have done something else here. Um, it just almost sounds well, like an afterthought or filler, like, hey, we got to There's knock no way out. he didn't have something else if he's been playing all those shows. He's not doing 39-minute yeah. well, shows. And there's yeah. not any way somebody didn't say, this sounds exactly like the second song on the album. <laughs> Is there? Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I, it's a mystery. Yeah. Okay. Well, of course, to some people, all the blues sounds the same no matter what. So, yeah. Well, that, yeah, I, I guess yeah. I could be, you know, sort anybody of, like that, don't I could sort of be lumped into yeah. that, but that's not true. I could distinguish between one blues song and another, but the, I, I was a little concerned that maybe I was being a little too hard on this song when I heard, you know, listening to it going, this sounds exactly like Pride and Joy. I can't, mm-hmm. there's not, you know, so I'm glad to I'm glad to get vindicated at least by the two bluesmen on the call. <laughs> All right, last song on the album, Lenny. original obviously about who <laughs> his, his second I think, wife yeah he um, says his guitar was his first wife <laughs> uh so lenny was his wife's nickname and yeah. 
Lenny is the name of one of his guitars. It's not about. Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. It's not um, about Lenny and Squiggy Lenny. It's not about Lenny and Squiggy. Or Lenny Bruce. <laughs> or Lenny <laughs> Bruce. Um, this is my favorite song in the album. I love it when. This is my favorite song in the album, Jam. Yeah. yeah I, I love it that. when. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when he does this kind of jazzy stuff. And that's the thing. It is. It's like jazzy blues. I could yeah. listen. If this album was like this, I could listen to this album all the time. I find this immensely interesting. This is the most interesting song on the album to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a perfect way. It's a great way to end. It is. Yeah. You know? um, and it's just, it reminds me of something off of Electric Ladyland by Hendrix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of exactly. Level. Yeah. I don't think there's any... Uh coincidence there yeah i don't think so either but still it's just he does it's masterful it's just uh, i love his guitar playing on this this is this is what i i could listen to stevie ray vaughn play songs like this you know I, all day long me too and would you say i mean okay is this the least bluesy song on this album i think it is i think it's the most jazzy and probably maybe that's maybe that's why i like it so the much. most it's very um, free uh yeah it's not it's not married to a standard 12 bar blues style or shuffle yeah uh, and it just it sounds like the whole band can just kind of go where they want on this yeah. as well so it's, it's a great it's a great song yeah it's a great way to end it and it does kind of show you that man he was not just a blues player he could really stretch out well and, i think uh, yeah, yeah i think it shows it, you what's coming i think yeah. if this album this album in particular does any disservice to him it's exactly what you guys talked about i mean this song obviously shows a little bit of that but you you guys talking about seeing him live uh i never saw him live but um i did watch video and stuff obviously this is um it's difficult to capture that on vinyl in general but then this album is kind of very, very much a sort of a one-sided view of him in a lot yeah. of ways too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the stuff he did after, um, yeah, he did blues songs and and things, but he, he kind of was stepping away from the blues, but he still gets associated as a Texas blues guitarist. Um, but you listen to stuff he was doing later, like Crossfire or even working with big horns, uh, covering things like superstitious. Um, yeah. I, 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 I I think had he not had he not died, um, I, I think he, it would have been pretty interesting to see what kind of stuff he would have done. Because I don't yeah. think I think you're right. I think uh, you know, unlike when I talked to earlier about his brother getting a little a little pissy about somebody asking him to play in a band that he thought was rock and roll, and he was just going to stick with the blues. Siri Vaughn obviously had no qualms with spreading his wings and doing different things because he was influenced by so many different types of people. And I think that's what makes him, you know, on hindsight, me, an older mm -hmm. version of myself looking back on him, makes his music interesting in a way that it didn't when I was younger, because I know more about that kind of stuff, I guess. But um, yeah, and he, you know, only, he only made four albums. Is that right? Four studio albums. Then he did the album with his brother, um, Family how, Style. How old was he when he died? 35. 35 wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And um, that was kind of pointing. That was a different direction that they were going in. Um, kind of a little bit, almost pop, you know. And I think Niles Roger, Nile Rogers produced that album. Doyle Bramble's on that album too, I think. Yeah, Doyle Bramble's on it. So, so it goes: Texas flood couldn't stand the weather. Soul to soul, which is not well thought of. No. Uh, in step, <laughs> family yeah. style, and the sky is crying. Yeah. Well, Sky, that's the, 
that's the posthumous yeah compilation yeah well anyway uh he died uh 1990 august of 1990 right before uh, right when i moved to Texas or moved to austin all right Hmm. i remember sitting i think i told you guys this i remember sitting in aussies the week after it happened talking to somebody about it well he uh he got on a uh, helicopter that took off when it shouldn't have because of weather conditions a bell 206b for our helicopter fans, he was tu- was he touring with Clapton at the time? Yeah, Robert. It was a three. It was Robert Cray, um, Eric Clapton, and he. They was they were sharing the bill. It crashed in um, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Yeah, Wisconsin, outside of Milwaukee. Where did that was? This is after he got himself clean. He he was uh, he was drinking tons of alcohol, and he was taking a lot of drugs and he'd wake up in the morning, not feeling really good. So he'd pour himself a whiskey and add cocaine to it to uh, get him back in gear. And he was about to uh, kill himself. And he finally, he got finally got himself together and went to, uh, went to rehab in England. Is that when he, was that when he woke up on the floor in Germany? He didn't know where the heck he was. Is that kind of his caught where where it all came to sharp relief? He was throwing up blood. Yeah. And was out of control and he knew he was going to die and he got rehab and he came out of that. It was extremely successful and he he became happier than he had ever been. He became a better musician than he had ever been. And he became an evangelist for sobriety after that. Uh, Another parallel with, with Clapton. Um, and he lived that 12-step program all the way. And I guess he got three years between sobriety and death. Um, yeah. Some people say, what a shame he went through all that work to get sober and then died. But I, w- I would say, thank God he did get sober before he died. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I, think, I think that's it. I think you're right, Doug. It's, it's, it's better that he was able to experience, regardless of how small a, a time it was. Oh, on that note, <laughs> it is that time in the night when we rate our album. And I'm going to go to Doug last since this was his pick, but I will go to Jam first. Jam. All right. We give two reviews every week. One is our review of whether, you know, will we listen to this or not? And the other one is our review of, uh, we call it the critic review, but really it's what, you know, technical aspects is kind of pulling our emotions out of it and just reviewing it for its, um, for its ability to be great music or not. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with my critics rating first. I'm going to give it a four Oh, um, I think that this was a, something that the record industry needed at the time. I I think it came out of it. I don't want to say it came out of nowhere because it came firmly out of the blues, but it was, I think that it, this was right before the new wave post-punk thing was, was really taken off over here. Synthesizers were sort of the rage. And this was a a kick in the pants that the record uh, record industry needed. Very guitar based. We really hadn't had a really good guitar hero other than somebody like Eddie Van Halen or those heavy metal guys. Here was a guy just coming out. Uh, he and Mark Knopfler, I think, are the the most original guitar players that, that came out uh, during this time. So I, I give it a four o that way. 
Um, my personal rating, I'm going to give it a, a like a three five, and kind of like with you, Tony. I find this a little too steeped in the blues. I think that this could have. There's songs on here like Lenny and Dirty Pool and uh, Texas. His version of Texas Flood, I think, are, are masterful. Um, and rude mood. I, I love that. But some of the songs, just the rest of them just kind of, uh, overall sort of bore me. Um, so I'm going to give it a three, five. I, my favorite album of his again is, is couldn't stand the weather. Uh, the next one, I, that one just, um, is something that I just think that he was firing on all cylinders on that one. And he's not quite there yet on this one. All right. Thanks, Jam. I will now go next um, since we, like I said, we'll go to Doug last. Um, so I'm a little bit younger than you guys. And as a result, um, heard all of this at a different stage in my development. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny because I go back and I think about stuff that I really liked at a certain point. There's there's music I listened to when I was at a younger age that I still listen to. It still holds me. It still grabs me. Um, and there's music that I listened to at a younger age that I, I can't listen to anymore. Um, that I remember liking the Eagles being one of those bands. I remember liking the Eagles a lot when I was younger and then just growing more and more, uh, uh, I don't know, smarter. <laughs> um, but, uh, so this album came out when I was, this was 83, right? I was, yeah. um, I was 13 when this album came out. So uh, it came out the same month that Synchronicity came out. And I'll say that I was listening to Synchronicity like nobody's business in 83. And I was not listening to Texas Flood. Um, that being said, I think technically uh, there's no denying this guy is something special. Uh, I, I, I don't know if this is what the record industry needed, but I think it's maybe what the blues needed in terms of getting a new wider audience than it had. I think it. I think this album uh, started a whole sort of new movement in sort of rock oriented blues, and a lot of a lot of people got attention who might not otherwise have gotten attention on you know what I would yeah. call uh, not top forty radio, but they you know album oriented to, for for what it was worth in the mid eighties. I think a lot of those bands, a lot of those people started getting uh, you know airplay whereas they wouldn't have i think robert cray been the that's, yeah. that's what i was gonna, I, that's exactly what i was thinking about was robert cray and then i forget yeah. the the blind guy who uh, oh jeff healy jeff healy uh, is another Chris guy I think. yeah i think there's a lot of guys that benefited from this album coming out um regardless of whether i like this music i think that's worthy of saying that it deserves from that point of view I, i'll agree with jam i'll give it a four um this is not an album I would listen to on my own. Um, that being said, if this, if I went into some, if I went into somebody's house and it was playing, or I heard these songs on the radio, I wouldn't turn them off. Uh, it's not like I would, you know, it's not like I'd flip into the dial and I hear a Jimmy Buffett song. I can't flip fast enough past it or a Pearl Jam song or the Siri Vaughn song. Come on. I'd probably depending on my mood, I'd listen to it, but this is, this is just, as I mentioned earlier, I just don't get this. This is not music that hits me between the eyes in a, in a way that I think, Oh, this is great. With the exceptions of a couple of songs. I think Lenny is a remarkable song. I would listen to that any day of the week. Um, I feel probably dirty pool. Maybe, uh, maybe not. It's, it's close. Um, but the rest of it's just a little too bluesy um, in your face for me. 
long way me saying I I'm going to give it a three right in the middle. All right, Doug. Well, a couple of things I need to talk about before I go through this. Um, Did you notice on the cover? I think it has a real cool cover, real artsy kind of uh, stylized deal. And it looks like he plays with his thumb on the cover. (laughs) I noticed that. (laughs) Which he absolutely never does that I know of. Um, Which that's uh, probably only interesting to me. Uh, The other thing that I find interesting is everybody talks about Texas white boy revives the blues. The blues live again because of a Texas uh, white guy. You know what album came out this year? In 83? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Eliminator. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot imagine. Well, yeah, but. I know Eliminator is a rock and roll album. Yeah. I mean, that's the stuff you hear on the radio is rock and roll. But for for Billy Gibbons to hear all of that, and he's got this monster album out, and he's going, "What?" Yeah, I've but never I heard mean, anybody be, talk about that before. Yeah, to be fair though, Doug, I mean, Eliminator is not blues the way this album is. Well, the, not even not even are, close. The hits well, that okay. made it. Um, well, the, you mean this? Yeah, the things that made it the album it was, yeah, right? Um, uh, sharp dressed man and. Uh, Legs, 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 all that. Um, I'm starting to find out that all these uh last year high school albums are pretty important to me. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I wasn't even in high school yet. <laughs> um, synchronicity was not important to me, but I did have a copy of Murmur. Um, <laughs> that's an 83. Um, the uh, I'm gonna do the critic first. That's uh, I would say four or five. And then I turn it up at least two notches because uh, it it was so um, so original and it's perfectly executed inside of its genre. The things that I don't think are perfect are, uh, I guess, the inclusion of two <laughs> one song is two songs. I'd, <laughs> I I have to take some off for that. Um, but and then uh, I give it five on my my emotional I, I can't help it i mean it was just too important uh when i was growing up for me to uh to not give it a five i just uh it's just an album i will never stop listening to and and it's associations with so many wonderful memories yeah I, you know, every time i went out there in college this album was playing you're you're close to this album in a way that i never could be no your yeah. time came and went yeah just first love you only can do it one time it's only you only break your after that first heartbreak all right well thanks guys uh that was that was actually fun it was interesting i I appreciate i've said this before you guys have picked stuff that i would never have put on our list and it forces me to reassess things i think in a good way and broaden my view of the musical universe so i appreciate that so that's our look at texas flood by stevie ray vaughn please go up to our website, tappingvinyl.com, and let us know what you think about it. You'll also find all sorts of good stuff up there related to albums we've looked at in past episodes, uh, including links to all of our past episodes. You can also reach us via Twitter at Tapping Vinyl, and you can visit our Facebook group page as well. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by an angry young man from England, 
Graham Parker's 1979 album, Squeezing Out Sparks. Slagle and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Final Tap for all the podcasts go to 11. And hey, let's dance. Oh my God, I couldn't sound wider.